You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, well, we have spent the last uh, couple of months together uh, in the opening chapters of the Bible. And part of what we are learning in the opening chapters of Genesis is that the Bible gets off to a grand start. That's how the Bible opens. It's amazing. In Genesis 1-1, God creates everything, like the whole universe, out of nothing, God creates it all. That's what we're seeing in the opening verse of the Bible. Then in the rest of Genesis 1, God begins his uh, work of preparation. He's now preparing his creation, in particular the land, uh, for his people. You see that in the rest of Genesis 1. Then you get to the end of Genesis 1. It's day 6, and God makes human beings. And we learn a lot of things about human beings, who we are. We are made in the likeness of God, Genesis 1 tells us. We're made in the image of God. That is an amazing declaration over humanity. That means that every human being is stamped with worth dignity and value that is unequaled in the rest of God's creation. Uh, We learn in Genesis 1 that we are made male and female. There are two distinct genders. And then God blesses the man and the woman. And he gives them really two tasks there at the end of Genesis 1. One task is multiplication. Uh, God blesses them and then commands them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, And then uh, it's domestication. He says, subdue the earth. I want you to exercise your dominion. I want you to cultivate and create. I want you to represent me in the world. I want you to rule for me in this world. So they're given the task of domestication. Uh, The Bible has this grand beginning. Now, if you could imagine reading the scriptures for the first time and you get to the end of Genesis chapter one, and now you're about to start Genesis two, and and it just sort of begs the question, what in the world is going to come next? How do you match Genesis one? What what would be the appropriate follow-up or what would be the sequel to Genesis chapter one? Well, here's the answer in Genesis chapter two. And by the way, uh, I wanna read an excerpt, a couple of sentences here from a guy named Ray Ortland in his uh, little book on marriage called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. And I would recommend it uh, to you. It just does such a good job of tracking the theme of marriage from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So I'm gonna wear us out today uh, with some quotes in this book and some thoughts from this book. But but what is the sequel to Genesis chapter one? What's gonna come next? Listen to Ray Ortland respond to that. It says, after making the heavens and the earth come together in the first creation, a man and a woman come together in the first marriage. Surprisingly, the Bible moves from cosmic majesty in Genesis 1, everything's created, to common everyday reality in Genesis 2, a young couple falling in love. Now, think about that for a moment. Either one of two things is happening in Genesis chapter 2. Either marriage is misplaced in the Bible. Either it's like, man, Moses must have gotten this wrong. The Bible just sort of got marriage out of place. It shouldn't be up front, sort of front-loaded in the biblical narrative like this. That's an option. Or another option is maybe the way God views marriage is as something much bigger and much more sacred than the way our culture views marriage. Maybe, just maybe that's the reason that we find it as the sequel to the creation of everything. And so in light of that, here's what I want to do today. 
I want to allow the scriptures to answer the question, what is marriage? So, so to work, as, work out a definition of, of a, what is marriage? And then to answer this question, what is marriage for? So what is marriage? What is marriage for? Let's take question number one. What is marriage? And we're just going to start in verse 18 of chapter two. So you can follow along there with me. In verse 18, we read this. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God looks at his pristine creation and he finds one thing that he doesn't like. And commentators are quick to pick up on this, that that not good is emphatic. So it's, it's not just missing something good. God's looking at it and saying, this is actually bad. This is, this is not good. I do not like what I'm seeing here. When God's looking at creation and he sees man by himself, that's just unthinkable to the Lord. It cannot go on this way, the Lord is saying. And it's interesting because upon seeing something that's not good, God doesn't immediately solve the problem. Instead, look at what we read in verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So in verse 18, God sees Adam's need. It's not good that he should be alone. But before God meets Adam's need, he wants to first awaken Adam to his need. Like before God meets the need, he wants Adam to actually see, oh, this isn't good. I agree. This is a problem that we've got here. Now, how does, how does God awaken the need in Adam? Well, he does that by parading the animals in front of Adam for naming. So that's what the text is getting at here. These animals are coming before Adam, and he is naming each of them. And I think along the way, Adam begins to notice that, yes, each of these animals are magnificent. They are beautiful creatures. But none of these animals are like me. I mean, I, I think Adam loved his dog, right? But I, I think at the same time, Adam knows, man, this dog cannot be my best friend. I, I'm going to have to have someone like me. This dog is not like me. So Genesis 2.21 the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And in a lot of ways, I think the narrative, the story just sort of slows down here. And you can imagine God looking at Adam and saying, Adam, I want you to lie down here and you're going to have to trust me. This is going to be a moment where I'm going to blow your mind. I'm going to make out of you, Adam, I'm going to make a companion for you that is not just majestic, but is also like you, Adam. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God creates Eve, 
Then like a proud dad, he presents Eve. He sort of walks Eve down the aisle and presents Eve to Adam. And then like a proud pastor, God marries. He joins these two together, our first parents, in marriage. Uh, when Jesus is referring back to this uh, passage in Matthew 19, he says that God himself joined them. Uh, God married them. God brought these two together. And then notice Adam's response. Adam erupts with joy. He receives his wife, this sacred gift from God, with great gladness. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Now, what you're seeing in verse 23 are the first few lines in human history. This is the first time it's happened in human history. Poetry has now entered into the landscape of humanity. P poetry. Uh, a friend of mine, an African-American friend of mine, he, looking at this text, said, uh, this was mankind's first R&B song. This is when it went down. This was the creation of it right here. Now, what is poetry? What is song for? Well, there are moments where prose, just our ordinary everyday language and the way we communicate, just talking words, there are moments when prose hits its limits, where it just, it runs into a wall. And when you find yourself at that wall, here's what human beings do. They create poetry. They create songs. Because poetry uh, songs go beyond those limits. They're more expressive of what's happening in a human heart. And that's what happens here. That when Adam sees Eve, normal words just will not work. Now, let me stop here. And I just want you to notice what, what's happening in Adam and Adam's posture to his spouse, to, to his wife. Adam is praising God for his wife. He is receiving his wife as a sacred gift from God. Now, I think this is foundational to like every marriage. If you want a healthy marriage, you have to be able to look at your spouse and see them as a sacred gift from God that you get to receive in their beauty and in their brokenness, knowing that, that God knows their beauty and their brokenness. He knows your beauty and your brokenness, and he has brought you both together. So let's just stop here and just ask that question. For all those who are married in the room or they are watching online, when you think about your spouse right now, can you receive them, the whole of them, the good and the bad, the broken and the beautiful, can you receive the whole of them as a gift from God to you? Is that how you see them? Are you receiving them from the Lord that way? Adam models this for us. This is deep down in the foundational level of every healthy marriage is the, the willingness to do this, to, to receive that person as a gift from the Lord. Then we get to verse 24, therefore. That word is massively important. Um, I think you could think about that therefore as uh, if you're watching TV and you paused the, the movie right in the middle of it and, and you stopped and said, um, okay, I need to explain to you, whoever's watching the movie with me, what has just happened in the movie. It's that moment. It's everything stops in the narrative and God now is about to explain to us what we have just witnessed. What has just happened here? Therefore, he says, 
Uh, by the way, when you ask the question, how does the Bible define marriage? How, 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 how does the Bible talk about marriage, define marriage? You should think about Genesis 2.24. This should be the first place in your mind that you go to to answer the question. How does the Bible define marriage? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the Bible's definition of marriage. Ray Ortland summarizes Genesis 2.24 this way, and I think it's a helpful summary. He says, marriage is one mortal life fully shared between one woman and one man. That's marriage in the scriptures. Marriage is one mortal life fully shared between one woman and one man. Now, we're in a cultural moment where people want to expand the meaning of marriage to be any arrangement between any, anybody. That, that's our cultural moment. It's this expansion of marriage to be any arrangement between anyone. But that is not just expanding the meaning of marriage. It is fundamentally redefining what marriage is. And part of what Moses is trying to show us in Genesis 1 and 2 is that marriage did not spring from your heart. It did not spring from my heart. It did not spring from any human heart in human history. That is not where marriage came from. Marriage came from God. It sprang from his heart. And because God created marriage, he is the only one who gets to define what marriage is. So, so we don't have the right to, to define or redefine marriage. God has the right to, to, redef or to define marriage for us. This is where God's authority and our autonomy begin to clash again in our culture. Our job is to submit to what God says about marriage, not what we want marriage to be. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This new one flesh union takes precedence over every other human relationship. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the math of marriage. One flesh. It's two people bringing every part of their lives, withholding nothing, and bringing every part of their lives together. No secrets. No parts of them that they're withholding and, and keeping in the dark every part of their life together. Every boundary that we, um, in some ways, rightfully keep up with friends. It is right to have some boundaries with our friends. That, that's a right and good thing. But all of those boundaries that we would rightfully keep up with friends vanish in a marriage. I love how one author talks about this. He says, in real terms, Two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us, building new life together with one total everything, one story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, and so forth. Marriage removes all barriers and replaces them, and I love this phrase, with a comprehensive oneness. That's what marriage is. It's a comprehensive oneness. It's a life fully shared. This is what separates marriage from every other earthly relationship. 
comprehensive oneness, a whole oneness. If you can imagine a box, marriage, this oneness, and by the way, that box is called one in marriage. That, that oneness box, we step into it, one man and one woman. And no one else is welcomed into the box. Kids aren't in the box. Parents aren't in the box. Friends aren't in the box. Neighbors aren't in the box. This, this relationship, this box of oneness between one man and one woman, it rules over every other human relationship. It's prioritized over every other human relationship. So before we move on, let's just ask that question. For those who are married, you've got the oneness box. Is anybody else in that box? Are you trying to invite anyone else into that box? Are you trying to draw your box too, too big? Marriage is comprehensive oneness. This relationship is higher than and gets prioritized above every other human relationship. That's marriage in the Bible. And then you get to verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's what marriage, even on this side of Eden, is meant to be. It's meant to be a place where a human being can be known all the way down into the depths of their soul, known and loved without fear of being shamed and embarrassed and ridiculed. That's marriage. Marriage is one mortal life fully shared between one woman and one man. Now, what is marriage for? Okay, if that's what marriage is, what is marriage for? Now, to answer that question, let's first think about the, the biblical story as a whole. The Bible is telling one grand story, right? It starts in Genesis chapter 1. It has this whole arc to it that ends in Revelation, uh, at the end of Revelation, right? That's the, the one big biblical story. So the Bible starts in Genesis 1. We've got the height of creation, right? Genesis 2, we've got the beauty of this first marriage being formed. Now, how does the Bible end? Uh, in the end, we see God recreating, right? He's, he's putting back together the creation uh, that has been broken and busted up by sin. And then we see all of that culminating in not a marriage, but in the marriage. That's how the Bible ends, just like it begins. You see this in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, listen to this, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's every son and daughter of God. That's our future. Heaven, which in this passage is pictured as an eternal honeymoon. That's what's awaiting every single follower of Jesus. Listen again to Ray Ortland talk about this. He says, not, it's not as though marriage is just one theme among others in the Bible. That would be a wrong way of viewing marriage in the scriptures. He says, no, instead marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible within which the other themes find their place. You see an earthly marriage at the beginning and you see this, this huge eternal marriage at the end. It's the wraparound concept of the entire scriptures. Now, Paul gives us the insight we need to get all the way down to the bottom of marriage's purpose in Ephesians chapter 5. 
In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, we read this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's marriage. We're back to the definition. And then Paul says this in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, marriage, it refers to Christ and the church. So what is marriage for? We could say it this way. Earthly marriage is a metaphor of the eternal marriage. This is why we have earthly marriages. They exist so that God can put a living, breathing picture of the eternal marriage between him and his people. He can put that picture inside of this world. That's that's why marriage exists. This isn't just like a cute idea about marriage. If you're married, this is the reason God has gifted you a marriage. So that it can be a living, breathing metaphor of the eternal marriage. So, so why do men and women fall in love? Why is it that the first time I held my wife's hand, it literally felt like I got electrocuted? I mean, why is that? Why do, when, when lovers are apart, why do they long to be together? Why will they spend hours talking with one another? Why do things like love songs exist? Why is all that? Why do we have something called marriage, this huge lifelong commitment that people throw themselves into? Why does all of that exist? Well, according to the scriptures, all of those exist as a signpost. All of them are pointing beyond the love of a couple for one another and to the unbreakable, never stopping, tender, sacrificial, gentle love of Jesus for his people. That's, that is why there is such a thing called marriage in this world. It's to do that. It exists to paint a picture, a living, breathing picture of, etern- of the eternal marriage. So every time you see a couple falling in love, or the next time you go to a wedding, or uh, maybe you're going to be the one that's, that's getting married here soon. Every time you're seeing these things play out, what you are witnessing is a reenactment of the biblical love story. Whether that couple realizes it or not, they're retelling the story of the selfless son of God stepping down into human history taking on human flesh, pursuing his bride across enemy lines and doing everything needed to win her heart over. That's what you're seeing. That's the reality behind every earthly marriage. Or as Jonathan Edwards, a pastor of a few centuries ago, he said it. Marriage is the shadow. God's love is the substance. Marriage is the ray of light. God's love is the sun. Marriage is the stream, God's love is the fountain. Marriage is the drop, God's love is the ocean. This is why your marriage exists, why earthly marriage exists. It exists as a metaphor for the eternal marriage. Now, let me give a few implications. We're gonna kind of finish in this section here. Let me just give a few uh, implications, sort of tether this to the ground in our everyday lives. So if that's what is marriage and what's it for, let me kind of bring it down to the ground with a couple of thoughts. Number one, one thing that we learn 
about marriage in the scriptures, in particular from what marriage is and what it's for, is that earthly marriages are not ultimate. And I want to say that again to us. Earthly marriages, so if you're single, you getting married, that is not ultimate. It's not the end all be all. It's not seen as like, if you don't have this, you can't, it's, it's not. Earthly marriages are not ultimate. All earthly marriages will one day end. You can maybe think about earthly marriages like this. They're temporary arrangements. Um, you're not going to be married to your spouse here on earth in heaven. So, so it's a temporary arrangement, according to Jesus in Mark chapter 12. The longest marriages will just last for this life. Because earthly marriages are temporary arrangements. It's a temporary arrangement to point to an eternal reality. That's what earthly marriages are. Now, in a lot of ways, this should give us a lot of freedom in the room. And that's, that's really what I'm hoping for, is that just contemplating and, and seeing and thinking about marriage like this would give us freedom. Marriage is not ultimate. See, part of what that does is free us to not place all of our hope in marriage. So if we're single, it is good to be reminded that you may be longing for marriage, and gosh, we pray with you for that. But it, it, we can also be reminded and just see and, and receive from the Lord freedom today to know that if you are not ever married in this life, your life can be whole and complete. As was Jesus's life, whole and complete. Because marriage, earthly marriage is not everything. The eternal marriage is everything. That's the marriage that is everything, but earthly marriages are not everything. And others in the room, we came today, and gosh, our marriage is on the ropes. Our marriage is so hard. Like, you wake up every day, and it is a fight. It is just a difficult reality that you're living in. And this ought to produce hope for you, freedom for you, because earthly marriages are not everything. The eternal marriage is ultimate. It's what's everything. And we can continually draw strength from that eternal marriage to endure and, and be sustained in marriage even when it's hard now. So earthly marriages are not everything. Second implication. Staying married isn't mainly about staying in love. Staying married isn't mainly about staying in love. Now, I can't think of any statement or phrase that would cut across the grain of the prevailing sort of cultural view of marriage uh, that we're just all sort of swimming in. Uh, this goes back to just the expressive individualism. Uh, the predominant way our culture sees marriage is through a lens of personal fulfillment. So where every, every health, well, let me say it this way. A healthy view of marriage knows this about marriage. You're going to have to work for your marriage. That's a healthy view of marriage is to know that. You're going to have to work for your marriage, to cultivate it, to see it nourished. But the prevailing sort of cultural belief about marriage is my marriage needs to work for me. It's not me work for the marriage. It's no, that, that marriage better be working for me. And the moment it stops working for me, the moment it's no longer personally fulfilling, the, the moment it's no longer giving me all the feels that I want, the, the moment it's no longer working for me, that's the moment when I'm out of marriage. That's the, the prevailing cultural ethic of marriage. 
But according to the scriptures, staying married isn't mainly about staying in love. It is mainly about telling the truth about the eternal marriage. That, that's why, fundamentally, this is why Christians stay married, because we want to tell the truth about the eternal marriage. We want to say true things about God's unbreakable, never-stopping, tender, sacrificial, gentle love of Jesus for his people. A follower of Jesus stays married because they want to be a true reflection of the way they are loved by Jesus. So it's not about personal fulfillment. Marriage is bigger than personal fulfillment. Your own individual happiness in your, it's bigger than that. Um, Every time I do a wedding, uh, one of the, the paragraphs that I read is this paragraph from a guy named John Piper. And he's describing the purpose of marriage. Let me just read it to you. Because I just want to remind every uh, newlywed, this is what you're signing up for. Right? This, is, this is how you need to start seeing marriage. Right? And listen to what he says. The purpose of marriage goes beyond personal fulfillment. The biblical purpose of marriage is not man-centered. It is God-centered. Your marriage is meant to point to the truth of the crucified and risen Savior who will return for his bride, the church. By the grace of God, your marriage is meant to be the best echo, the most faithful reflection of that relationship that you can possibly be. It's about being genuinely united in a strong, godly, intimate relationship that echoes the one between Christ and the church. Now, he goes on to describe the moment uh, when... Countless spouses uh, look at their husband or wife and say, I'm divorcing you. I'm out because I just, I no longer am in love with you. I've fallen out of love. I was once in love with you, but now I'm no longer in love with you. And he responds by saying this. One profoundly legitimate response from the church is, so what? So what? It does not matter that you have fallen out of love. So what? You're being in love or out of love with someone is not decisive. Keeping your covenant, that's what's decisive. Telling the truth about the way Jesus loves his people, that's what's decisive. Then at that wedding, right before the uh, bride and groom, right before they kiss, So this is like the final moment of the wedding. Right before that moment happens, I read this little line from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was writing from prison to a newly married couple, and this is what he said to them. He says, it is not not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage, that, that promise, that covenant, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. What sustains a Christian marriage is not just what you feel toward your spouse. What sustains a Christian marriage is the promise you made to God and your spouse. Staying married isn't mainly about staying in love. It's mainly about you telling the truth about the eternal marriage. Third implication. Every earthly marriage says something. Every marriage is saying something about the eternal marriage. 
So we don't have the option of silencing our marriage. Every earthly marriage will say something about the eternal marriage. It will either say true things about the eternal marriage, or it will say false things about the eternal marriage. So one way we say a true thing about the eternal marriage is by staying married. But that's like the bare minimum, right? I mean, that's like the, the bottom shelf thing we could say about saying true things about the eternal marriage. A, a better thing that we can, say, we can say or a better way to say true things about the eternal marriage is when a husband proactively displays the headship of Jesus and when a wife mirrors that joyful deference to the, of the church to Jesus. Right? That is when a marriage begins to sing the truth about God. So husbands, if you ignore your wife, if you neglect a deep friendship with your wife, if you are harsh with her, if you let passivity set in and just sort of reconcile yourself, that this is the way things will always be around here. If you are emotionally unavailable to her, if you act like a tyrant, raising your voice and being harsh and angry, then you're painting a distorted picture of the gospel. You're saying in that moment, this is how Jesus treats his people. But when you lay down your life for your wife, and you cherish her, nourish her, affirm her, delight in her, pursue her, forgive her, are tender with her. It allows a, wife, a wife's heart just to flourish and to come alive. And most importantly, you are then saying a true thing about the way Jesus has loved you. And wives, if you run around on your husband, if you disrespect your husband, neglect him, you nurture resentment, you, you refuse to forgive him, you are telling the world a lie. You are saying this is how Jesus treats his people. But when you joyfully follow him, when you love him, when you lay your life down for him, when you, when you give of yourself to him, you are showing a true thing to the world. You're saying, this is how Jesus loves his people. Church, God has gifted you with marriage not just to satisfy your longing for companionship. He's gifted you with a marriage so that you could say a true thing about the eternal marriage. That is why he has given you the gift of marriage. So let me finish here. <clears throat> Uh, when I do weddings, one of the things we do at the beginning is we start by praying. And this is the, the first thing that we pray for this uh, new couple, is we pray that their marriage would be a great picture of the marriage. Because that's what an earthly marriage is meant to do. It's meant to be a beautiful picture of the marriage. But th this is true for all of us here today. For our marriage to be, for it to faithfully represent the marriage, for it to faithfully represent Jesus, wouldn't we all agree that you first have to know Jesus? If it's going to faithfully represent him, we first have to know him. We first have to know deep down in our bones what it's like to be loved by God. Pursued, nourished, 
cherished, forgiven by God. To have a great marriage, we need more than another book on marriage. We need to know the God who made marriage. And so it really begs this question that we'll end with. Do you know him? Are you in the eternal marriage? Like the marriage that's ultimate. The marriage that you were made for. Not not an earthly marriage, but are you in the marriage? Have you crossed that line of faith and said yes to Jesus? I do to Jesus. Uh, Listen one more time to Ray Ortland as he's describing what does it mean to become a Christian? Uh, This is what he says. Do not think that becoming a Christian is adding religion into your already busy life. So it's not sprinkling some church into your life, sprinkling some Bible reading in, sprinkling some some good morality into your life. That's not what being a Christian is. He, He goes on to say, that would be like inviting one more lover into your already overcrowded bed. Becoming a Christian is a sinner like you and me being proposed to by the living Christ who's asking you to give yourself completely to him. Then on the other hand, it is you by faith looking to Christ and saying, I do, yes, I'm in. And when you say I do, you belong to him forever and to no other. That's becoming a Christian. And is that you, has that happened? Uh, The Christian story really is a story of divine romance. It's the story of our God stepping into human history, dying for our sin, rising from the dead, doing everything needed to win our hearts over. That's the story. And are you in on that? Have you entered into the marriage, the ultimate marriage, the most important marriage? Everything about your life now and the life to come depends on this. Are you in the eternal marriage? Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Lord to press down into you what would be most helpful today and to wipe away the things that would not be helpful Are you in the marriage? Has there been that moment where you have looked at God and said, I do, I do. I mean, this is the amazing thing about today, right now, is this could be your wedding day. the most important day of your life, the day where you enter into a relationship with God himself. And if that's you, just there where you are, you can cry out to the Lord, you can throw your life upon him, and he stands so ready to rescue and to save. And there are others today, you're married, and your marriage is on the ropes. It is hard, it's difficult. You came in today with a limp. It is just hanging by a thread. 
And if that's you today, we want to pray for you. So just there where you are, I'm not going to embarrass you. There's going to be no one looking around but me. But if that's you today, if your marriage is in a tough spot, would you have the humility just to raise your hand there where you are so we could pray for you? I'm not going to shame you, not going to embarrass you, just going to pray for you. So there where you are, will you, will you raise your hand? Yep, I see you there. Yep. Yep. Others? Yep. Mm-hmm, I see you there. Yep, I see you. Yep. Any others? Yeah. Church family, would you join me in praying for these folks? Father, we pray for these marriages today. God, we know that you see them. We know that you know the intimate details of their marriage. You know the wounds. You know the hurts. And oh God, would you come into those hurting places and help? Would you bring your grace with you to mend and restore and to bring back to life dead things? Father, it is amazing to consider that we serve a God who came out of the grave. And in knowing that, we now can pray that you would raise dead things to life, hurting things. So God, would you do that? Would you mend and restore and help? God, where there needs to be the humility to own sin, God, would you give every man, every woman, the the ability to do that? Where there needs to be the, the willingness to forgive, God, would you put it in each of our hearts to do that? So, oh God, help us. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.